Are you in college? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad Program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2024. This unique and exciting study abroad program offers you the opportunity to spend a semester in Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. You'll study the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome, live with like-minded young men and women steps from the Colosseum, and participate in weekly cultural and intellectual events, regular day trips, and multi-day excursions. To learn more about this life-changing opportunity, go to ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. That's ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I'm going to go back to where I left off last time, which was in Book 8, the, the Book of Many Conversions. And after describing how edified he was and other people were by the series of conversions that have been spoken of in Book 8, uh, he pauses uh, to meditate on why he can't pull this off or hasn't been able to pull it off very well up until this point. And he introduces uh, what, a position he's very famous for, which is the problem of the divided will. By the way, not two different wills like the Manichaeans but a single will divided. And one way to, and I will read the passage, but one way to portray the division is between freedom of choice, that is, up or down, yes or no, in a choice, and uh, freedom at this level, being willing to, and being able to sustain that aspect of the will and Augustine's uh, position, which gets ever more complicated even after the confessions when he returns to it in different works, is this is where the division is, right? And that you can choose something you're not very willing to do, and it becomes very difficult to sustain uh, the object of the will. This is the kind of thing that I think in the Aristotelian tradition is explained by the presence or absence of virtue, even if Aristotle does not have uh, Augustine's understanding of the will. Right? That to sustain even good choices requires moral virtues, which, especially at this level, if we speak of it from an Augustinian point of view, uh, a habit. Spiritual habits. So anyway, uh, the question is, in Book 8, Chapter 9, uh, what can explain such an absurdity, is how he begins, that uh, freedom of choice I choose, or I at least get pretty far into the order of choosing, but then 
I am. Make me chaste, but not yet, is his famous formula for this. The mind gives an order to the body, and the order is obeyed immediately. The mind gives an order to itself, and there is resistance. The mind orders the hand to move, and such readiness is shown that you hardly distinguish the command from its execution. Yet the mind is the mind, and the hand is the body. The mind orders the mind to will. It is the same mind, yet it does not obey. And what can be the explanation of such an absurdity? The mind, I say, orders itself to will. It would not give the order unless it willed it, yet it does not obey the order. The fact is that it does not will the thing entirely. So pause. It does kind of obey the order, but not entirely. It fizzles out very quickly. Consequently, it does not give the order in its entirety. So the problem at this lower level is that it flows back to the upper one, and that the order that was given in free choice is affected by it to some extent. The order is not given entirely. The force of the order is the force of the will, and disobedience to the order results from insufficiency of the will. For the will orders that there should be a will, not a different will but itself, but it is not entire in itself when it gives the order, and therefore its order is not obeyed. He has, uh, in the City of God, a, a very interesting question and a very sharp answer. What's the punishment for disobedience? Death. Disobedience. Disobedience is the punishment for disobedience, for Augustine. In other words, the punishment is already there in the disobedience itself. So this, this is a marker for Augustine of uh, the evidence of sin, that you don't, need, you don't need an external authority to begin the process of punishment. Punishment is already at work in the sin-sick will. And so there's the problem. The will cannot turn. There's a problem of the turning of the will. If you go to the very end of chapter 10, all these wills are good, yet they conflict with one another until one particular choice has been made toward which the whole will, which was previously divided, now turns entirely. So too, when eternity offers us a higher pleasure and the delight in some temporal good holds us down below, it is the same soul which feels both impulses. Now, I'm interested in this turning part because as I think I mentioned, at least in the first lecture, for Augustine, a, a something made unto the image of God and likeness of God is a turning thing. And it's in the it's already a sign and a sign of something other than itself. So a turning thing becomes what it is in its fullness when it turns to the prototype, which means that it does what any image is supposed to do, just like a mirror, a mirror that does not reflect its prototype 
is not functioning like a mirror or not functioning very well. Uh, when he says unto the likeness, that means, yeah, the actions that flow from the turning, which are, he describes in moral and spiritual terms, similitudo. By the way, those can be either actions of an individual or a group, even. But back. without turning entirely, the soul is it's not paralyzed, it's still a dynamism. It's doing stuff. But it, it's not happy. And I have this passage from T.S. Eliot. These are only three stanzas. But he, he lifted this out of his discussion. I think it's, well, it's my favorite poem. By the way, it's much longer than these three stanzas. The, the title of the poem is Ash Wednesday. Would anyone care to read? So I'm not doing all the talking. Yeah. Okay, read. Just one of these? Or... Uh, no, read the whole thing. Because I do not hope to turn again, because I do not hope, because I do not hope to turn, desiring this man's gift and that man's scope, I no longer strive to strive towards such things. Why should the aged eagle stretch its wings? Why should I mourn the vanished power of the usual reign? Because I do not hope to know the infirm glory of the positive hour, because I do not think, because I know I shall not know, the one veritable transitory power, because I cannot drink there where trees flower and springs flow, for there is nothing again. Because I know that time is always time, and place is always an only place, and what is actual is actual only for one time, and only for one place. I rejoice that things are as they are, and I renounce the blessed face, and renounce the voice, because I cannot hope to turn again. Consequently, I rejoice having to construct something upon which to rejoice. Yeah, pretty good. Um, so the turning is difficult, but absolutely essential for, for a being created in the image and likeness of God. Um, the angels only have one turning. It's a very fascinating subject in Augustine, but we will not have possibly have time for it. Um, they are created ex nihilo, and they are created in a potency in which the angelic intelligence, and it is an intelligence, is capable of surveying itself. It knows itself, and sort of like a Cartesian cogito, it's a thinking thing. And before any lapse of time, chronological lapse of time, the first act of the angel is going to have to be to turn or not to turn. And the angels who turn toward the divine, of course, are the good angels, which enjoy no flux thereafter. They're in a kind of avum, but yeah, so they, they adhere to the divine. The other angels remain in themselves. They kind of turn, but in the wrong direction. They try to find their stability in themselves. Okay. So uh, something is likewise sort of true about human beings. 
But we, we have advantages that angels don't have because we have uh, more potencies, actually. And that we're, we're capable of changing in many different ways, you know, from cold to hot, from joyful to uh, depressed. All kinds of changes that the human soul can go through because of, we have a, a mutability that the angels and a changeability more complex than that of the angels. This is on the good side. So God did something right, according to Augustine, giving us something less than the angelic imago in one respect, but we can be saved. It's possible for us to be saved. We can change in the right direction, and a single, God willing, we're not stuck with a single choice. We have more op opportunities of choice. But in lieu of not changing or turning, I think C.S. Eliot got, has Augustine's mind just right. What other kind of rejoicing can be done? Having to construct something upon which to rejoice. And that is the libido dominandi. For Augustine, that which doesn't turn toward the divine and toward the light, but uh, turns everything to itself. So this is Augustine's condition as, as he's narrating it. Uh, and he describes all of his emotions and how strung out he was. And he and his friend Olypius go to a garden. The gardens are always interesting in these stories, but they go to a garden, and yeah, well, just, let's just read it. This is book 12 of, I mean, chapter 12 of book 8. And now from my hidden depths, my searching thought had dragged up and set before the sight of my heart the whole mass of my misery. Then a huge storm arose within me, bringing with it, yeah, the first thing here, a huge downpour of tears, that I might pour out all these tears and speak the words that came with them. I rose up from Olypius. Solitude seemed better for the business of weeping. These guys are Romans. Okay. Uh, but it's definitely the gift of tears. I mean, this is the whole monastic tradition have, describes this. It's it's in a way a very important sign that there's going to be a turning. Okay. And went further away so that I might not be embarrassed. This was how I felt, and he realized it. No doubt I had said something or another, and he could feel the weight of my tears in the sound of my voice. And so I rose to my feet, and he, in a state of utter amazement, remained in the place where we had been sitting, I flung myself on the ground somehow under a fig tree and gave free rein to my tears. And I kept saying to you, not perhaps in these words, but in this sense, and thou, O Lord, how long, how long, Lord, wilt thou be angry forever? For I felt it was these which were holding me fast, and while I, in my misery I would explain 
how long, how long, this tomorrow and tomorrow, why not now? Why not finish this very hour? So I spoke, weeping in the bitter contrition of my heart. Suddenly, a voice reaches my ears from a nearby house. It's the voice of a boy or a girl. I don't know which. Medieval depictions say it's an angel. In, in most medieval depictions. of And in a kind of sing song, the words are constantly repeated. Take it and read. Take it and read. Tole legge. Uh, by the way, of the three understandings of religion, uh, all three are present in this, in this uh, event. Pick it up and read. So the first notion of religion is to be over and over bound, to be rebinded. Uh, the second one is to reread over and over again. Tole legge, or re legere. And the third is to re-choose, re-elegere. All three of these are going on here. And at once my face changed, and I began to think carefully of whether the singing of words like these came into any kind of game which children play, and I could not remember that I had ever heard anything like it before. And I checked the force of my tears and rose to my feet. This is the prodigal, finally, turning being quite certain that I must interpret this as a divine command to me to open the book and read the first passage which I should come upon. Yes, Catholics once upon a time did, but my Protestant friends growing up in Virginia did. They did scripture cracking. It was a very common practice. I mean, even in monasteries, right? They'd go in to pray in the chapel, they'd open up the Bible. It's the word for me. And uh, read the first passage I came upon, for I had heard about Antony. He had happened to come in when the gospel was being read, and as though the words read were spoken directly to himself, received the admonition, go and sell all that you have, uh, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and follow me. And he'd been immediately converted. So I went eagerly back to the place where Olypius was sitting, and since it was there, I had left the book of the Apostle, St. Paul. When I rose to my feet, I snatched up the book. Um, you know, they didn't have big books then. So this was a probably epistle to the Romans would have been in two or three volumes. It was handier, given the kind of medium uh, that they had to use for a book. And read in silence, reading in silence, okay, it means something for Augustine. The passage upon which my eyes first fell, not in rioting and drunkenness or in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh and concupiscence. I had no wish to read further. For immediately I had reached the end of the sentence, it was as though my heart was filled with the light of confidence, and all of the shadows of doubt were swept away. So, for such an important conversion scene, that's always going to tell us. 
But you, you don't need to, to know very much more. It, it is amazing grace. And so, where do we go from there? Uh, well, we have to go to we have to go to book nine. He's preparing for baptism. He, he and Olympias both, and they kind of make a retreat, a pre-baptismal retreat at this villa owned by a well-known person around there. Uh, his name's Veracundus, who, an, an interesting guy. He was a kind of quasi-philosopher, a wise guy of some kind, and well-known in Ambrose's uh, circles. He, he never took baptism. He had a Christian wife, and he never took baptism because he was convinced Speaking of that book I mentioned yesterday, The Final Pagan Generation, he was convinced that to take baptism means he had to leave his wife. It's how powerful this generation starts to appropriate the Gospels, at least among the professional classes. When you take baptism, everything has to change. In other words, you, you kind of have to be a monk. You have to live that kind of life. Not that you have to. It's not that there's any church law requiring you to do that by any means. But such was the culture of converts, especially among this class of people at the time. Well, Veracundus owned this villa, and Augustine and his friends went out there to have a retreat and actually to have a little taste of monasticism to be secluded, to contemplate, uh, to say the Psalms. Um, I highly recommend reading Peter Brown's biography. He has a whole chapter on what this retreat to Veracundus's uh, villa meant. So the day came, this is now chapter 4, on which I was actually to be freed of this profession of rhetoric, from which, in my mind, I was already free. So it was done. You rescued my tongue as you rescued my heart. And, well, he doesn't describe the event of the baptism here very much, but one of the immediate effects, which is rescuing his tongue as well as his heart, he mentions in the next paragraph, is uh, he was able to read the Psalms in a new way. Yeah, he has, he has a whole paragraph on that. Right away, he could, he could read the Psalms with a, kind of religiously. So I think what we now need to do is Go to 9, 10, chapter 10. So this is, I think, the completion, chapter 10 of book 9, of what I was calling the new family. 
because uh, Monica has, Monica and Augustine both have decided to go back to North Africa. He intends, apropos of that villa he had been in, to found a monastery. And he had intended to found it in Hippo Regius, which was not his hometown. But it was a very important town, not as big as Carthage, but as more powerful in a way, because the Roman Navy was there. It would have been like the North African, Norfolk, Virginia. And he, uh, well, he doesn't know that Monica is about to die. But when they are in Ostia waiting for a ship, they have this, they have this vision of the one. It's extremely interesting. Who would like to read the first paragraph? Go ahead. And the day was approaching on which she was to leave this land. You knew when this day would be, but we did not. And it so happened. This, I believe, was by your secret ordering. But she and I were standing alone, leaning in a window, which looked onto the garden inside the house where we were staying, at Ostia on the Tiber. There we were out of the crowds, and after our long and weary journey by land, we were resting ourselves for the sea voyage. So we were alone and talking together, and very sweet our talking, and forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth into those things which are before, we were discussing between ourselves and in the presence of truth, which you are, what the eternal life of the saints could be like, which I hath not seen, nor I heard, nor hath it entered into the heart of man. Yet with the mouth of our heart we panted for the heavenly streams of your fountain, the fountain of life, which is with you. So that if some drops from that fountain, all that we could take were to be scattered over us, we might in some way or other be able to think of such high matters. Yeah, pause. This, this, um, this phrase, the mouth of the heart, is very important uh, monastic phrase. Uh, at, in the prologue to the rule of Benedict, it says the ear of the heart, which uh, could be very good for understanding this because, of course, Benedict is founding a monastic community uh, in, in obedience to the abbot, but they, everyone in obedience to the rule. So the ear of the heart is very important. Uh, uh, hear, O brothers, the voice of the master, kind of. And it's later on that Bernard Clairv Clairvaux gives a sermon in this same vein in which he says, before sin, the, the proper image is the eye. Because, well, in some ways they walked with God in the garden. This was not beatific vision, but they understood, they understood immediately. And it wasn't like uh, being dictated to. There, there was a harmony between the first parents and the Lord. And Bernard Clove Clairvaux argues, by the way, Luther also argues on the basis of Luther, uh, Bernard Clairvaux. After sin, it comes through the ear. Because coming through the ear is obedience. Ab dire, to the voice. You first you must listen to the voice. Well, here it's the mouth of the heart. Um, 
a, a similar concept in that they have been turned in their souls to wanting something. He says panting for it. Okay, so uh, let's go to the second paragraph. Who wants to read? Good. Our talk had reached this point that the greatest possible delights of our bodily senses, radiant as they might be with the brightest of corporeal light, could not be compared with the joys of that eternal life, could not indeed even deserve a mention. Then, with our affections burning still more strongly toward the self-same, we raised ourselves higher and step by step passed over all material things, even the heaven itself from which sun and moon and stars shine down upon the earth. And still we went upward, meditating and speaking and looking with wonder at your works. And we came to our own soul. And we went beyond our souls to reach that region of never failing where thou feedest Israel forever with the food of truth, and where life is that wisdom by whom all these things were made, both what is past and what is to come. But wisdom herself is not made. She is as she has been and will be forever. Or rather, there is no place in her for to have been or to be going to be. One can only say to be, since she is eternal, and have been, and going to be are not eternal. And as we talked, yearning toward this wisdom, we did, with the whole strength of our heart's impulse, just lightly come into touch with her. And we sighed, and we left bound there the first fruits of the Spirit. And we returned to the sounds made by our mouths, where a word has a beginning and an ending. And how unlike this is to your word, our Lord, you who abide in yourself forever, without becoming old, making all things new. Good. And another uh, appropriation in silence. So we have Ambrose in silence. We have Augustine in his conversion, reading in silence. And we have a, a conversation between Augustine and Monica uh, that reaches a point just lately close to the self-same in which they stop talking. Yeah. So I'll continue. So we said... If to any man the tumult of the flesh were to grow silent, silent the images of earth and water and air, and the poles of heaven silent also. If the soul herself were to be silent, and by not thinking of self were to transcend self, if all dreams and imagined revelations were silent, and every tongue, every sign, if there was utter silence from everything which exists only to pass away, for if one can hear them, these all say, we did not make ourselves, he made us that abideth forever. But suppose that having said this, and directed our attention to him that made them, they too were to become hushed, and he himself alone were to speak, not by their voice, but in his own, and we were to hear his word not through any tongue of flesh or voice of an angel or sound of thunder or difficult allegory, but that we might hear him 
whom in all things we love, might hear him in himself without them, just as a moment ago we too had, as it were, gone beyond ourselves, and in a flash of thought had made contact with that eternal wisdom that abides above all things. And supposing this state were to continue, that all other visions, visions of so different kind, were to be withdrawn, leaving only this one to ravish and absorb and wrap the beholder in inward joys, so that his life might be forever like that moment of understanding that we had. And would this not be, enter into thy master's joy? So what, what's interesting to me in that passage is the issue of semiotics. Uh, so why do we have so many signs? Because, in, in fact, he calls it later on the confession, the world that we enter when we're born, and even the world of the church, is a forest of signs. It's like a Brazilian rainforest of signs. Uh, so are we to have contempt for signs? The answer is no, because almost all the rest of the confessions now is, is about semiotics and signs. But the, what is the function of a sign? It's to mirror its prototype. So a signifying thing needs to call attention to the thing signified. And in that sense, he's saying in... Book 10, I mean, chapter 10 of book 9. Suppose there were a situation in which every signifying thing, air, birds, thunder, other human beings, con conversation with your holy mother, even sacraments, suppose they all disappear. And I think the conclusion of this, but you have to keep on reading, is that that is the function of signs, that if, if the sign is constantly turning you back into other signs and not to reality or realities, signs would be dysfunctional. So we can imagine the utter functionality of signs to the point where only that which is signified is what we're attending to without voice, without Latin endings. Yeah. So that's the house of the Father for Augustine. And uh, what follows here, of course, is the, uh, the death of Monica and his encomium to her life. And, uh, well, it's very beautiful. You know that she did not make it back to North Africa. She was buried in uh, Ostia. And she was there for a few centuries. She's not there now. You can find her at the Church of San Agostino, Augustino, just north of Piazza Navona. They had to dig her up a couple of centuries later because of Islamic pirates uh, raiding the shores of that part of Italy. So she, she is, she is uh, at rest now in the, the Church of San Agostino. And if you go in there, you'll find a very interesting holy card 
that sort of prayer to St. Monica that says, Oh, St. Monica, you who had such fecund prayer that you, that your, uh, that your son became a great saint, and you who were so holy because you dealt with this rude husband named Petricius. <laughs> anyway, I'm not sure the Augustinian friars, maybe the nuns wrote that, I'm not sure. <laughs> but, uh, so, now let us turn to signs. Uh, 10.6. And I'm going to read out of the Pussy translation, just because my my lecture notes are based upon this. But turn to 10.6. There won't be that much difference. Because the book 10 is all about signs. Uh, So is book 11, so is 12 and 13. So I'm going to read something from 10, and then I think I'm going to take us to book 13, where he really goes into the forest of signs. Uh, So here is 10.6. And what is this? I asked the earth, interrogavi, it's an interrogation, right? So, rogo, rogare is to ask. Interrogatio is an inquiry, usually means an inquiry. In in ancient Rome, uh, a rogare would mean a sacramentum that young men took upon puberty in allegiance to the the state. So this is going to be an interrogation. It's it's, it's an interrogation of signs. So I first asked the earth, and the earth is a sign, and it answered me, I am not he. And whatsoever are in it confessed the same. I asked the sea and the deeps and the living creeping things, and they answered, we are not thy God, seek above us. And I asked the moving air, and the whole air with its, his inhabitants answered, Anaximenes was deceived, I'm not God. Of course, Anaximenes thought all things were made out of air. Uh, Nor, say they, are we the God whom thou seekest? And I replied to all the things which encompass the door of my flesh. You have told me of my God that ye are not he. Tell me something of him. And so what's the first thing that created things, which are all signs? What's, what's the first answer? I mean, what are they signifying? I mean, what is being signified? And they say, he made us. So this is the beginning of his quest to get to in the beginning, which is the rest of the confessions. It's really a long interrogation that goes on. The first thing the creature will say, if the creature is telling the truth, he made us. My questioning them was my thoughts on them, and their form of beauty gave the answer. And I turned myself unto myself, and I said to myself, Who art thou? And I answered, A man. And behold in me, they present themselves to, to my soul and body, one without, the other within. 
By which of these ought I to seek my God? I had sought him in the body, from earth to heaven, so far as I could send messengers to beams of my eyes. But the better is the inner, for to it as presiding and judging all the bodily messengers, he uses uh, nuncii corporealis, the word for angels, but they're, they're basically messengers. They're, they're signs communicating something. And they reported the answers of heaven and earth and all things therein who said, We are not God, but he made us. These things did my inner man know by the ministry of the altar, and I the inner knew them, I the mind, through the senses of my body, and I asked the whole frame of the world about my God, and it answered me, I am not he, but he made me. Non ego sum. Not ego sum qui sum. And now becomes this little meditation, this first paragraph. Is the, not this corporeal figure apparent to all whose senses are perfect? Why then speaks it not the same to all? Animals small and great see it, but they cannot ask it, because no reason is set over their senses to judge on what they report. But men can ask, they can interrogate so that the invisible things of God are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. But by love of them, they are made subject to them. So here's the problem with signs, which are virtually all created things. Uh, it is the problem of book eight. It's the problem all the way back to book one. It's the love of the sign over the reference. So even when I love myself more than anything else, I'm loving a sign over the referent. And subjects cannot judge. So what he's trying to explain here is, given the abundance of signs that, if properly interrogated, would lead us to understand that we're not gods or demigods, or nothing in creation are gods or demigods. Um, the love of the sign, the word. Remember, this is the first fruit he claims of being liberated from rhetoric. And rhetoric is the worship of the sign over the reference. And subjects cannot judge. There is the problem. It is not being able to interrogate correctly even though the evidence is there. And why? Because the evidence is clear. It's because of a perverted love. It's a per perverted love of the created imago. Let's say especially. Nor yet do the creatures answer such as ask, unless they can judge, nor yet do they change their voice, that is their appearance. Their appearance is the sign. If one man only sees, another seeing asks. So as to appear one way to this man, another way to that, but appearing the same way to both. The sign is seen by both. Red light. 
It is dumb to this, but speaks to that. Yea, rather, it speaks to all, but they only understand who compare its voice received from without to the truth within. Now, the sign has to be turned and connected to its reference, to reality. For truth saith unto me, neither heaven nor earth nor any other body is thy God. This their very nature saith to him that seeth them. They are a mass. A mass is less in a part thereof than in the whole. And now I speak, O my soul, thou art my better part. For thou quickenest the mass of my body, giving it life, which no body can give to a body. But thy God is even unto thee the life of your life. So, um, one text to go to that really has a wonderful connection to this little meditation is De Doctrina. Uh, and the first part is an early work. It's about the time he's doing this. The very first part of De Doctrina, about the same time. Augustine is asked by a deacon um, what it means to teach. And Augustine begins uh, by saying, the first principle of teaching, whatever one possesses, which is not lessened or diminished by being communicated, is not possessed as it ought to be possessed. So the first rule that the deacon has to know about preaching is the fundamental art of teaching is connected to the moral end of communicating the truth. It's not just your words. And there's more being rather than less being when truth is communicated to others. And no one is worse off by the truth. No one is worse off by teaching a third grader the multiplication table. Okay. So, uh, that's the beginning of his inquiry that will be the last books of the Confessions, is interrogation. It's very philosophical. We need to interrogate words, uh, things, people, anything that is assigned. Because uh, we know that they are created, and they're created to point back to what is First truth. And some people interrogate and some people don't. It's quite a mystery. But the first fruit of baptism for Augustine, that of the Holy Spirit, is to learn how to interrogate. I mean, even Aquinas says something like this. When he gets to the new law uh, in the Prima Secundae, the new law is nothing other than the Holy Spirit moving the will to move the mind to assent. In other words, being moved to hear a certain voice and, and to give an assent. Uh, and he's reading St. Paul, remember, as well. Uh, why, given the splendor of created things, why do 
the Gentiles give their minds over to creeping and crawling things. Let's say creeping and crawling things are, are the signs which are loved in themselves rather than their reference. Now, I can't go any further, but I would say this. This is a medieval construction, but it comes out of Augusta. So, the various signs we deal with are, are so multiple. Um, creation itself, like scripture, assumes the nature of a book for Augusta. It witnesses to its author, and like scripture and the incarnation of the word of God, it itself contains and engenders symbols, allegories, sacraments, which enable its invisible spiritual sense, its creator, to be seen more clearly through and in the visible. Okay. So this is, it's a philosophical investigation, but it's also uh, an investigation into all of the scriptural signs. I'll just give one example of signs, among which are sacraments. They're not the only ones. Uh, sacraments instituted by Christ. So when we talk about, let's say, marriage, which is a sacrament. Um, at one, what kind of a sign is it? Well, the sacramentum, the sign itself, or just taking the sign in itself. And what is the sacramentum pontum of marriage, one man and one woman? That's the sign in itself. Um, second, the sign plus its reality. The union of Christ and the church. And finally, we have just the res, the res itself. I mean, if you got to the very end of Augustine's ascent with Monica, it's just the res. All of the words and everything else disappeared. What is the res tantum? Well, I could go to Revelations 22. Yeah. You'll find the res tantum in Revelations 22. Or in the Eucharist, bread and wine are the sacrament, the sign itself. The sign plus its reality is the body and blood of Christ. What is called the restantum? We use the word all the time. We call it communion. It's called communion. Go to Revelation 22 for that one too. Um, so these are, these are different functions. Signs. But the key is the thing itself. How does um, transubstantiation fit? Or like the real presence? Well, uh, that is, uh, we, we take the bread and wine here. That is, the signs themselves now communicate something different than bread and wine. And is that an accident, or? No, uh, the accident is actually the sacramentum at this point. I remember once going to a church in Canada in the late 60s, maybe it was early 70s, 
there's sort of a silly season on sacramental things. But in the apse of a beautiful kind of Gothic church, everything had been stripped out. And they had these huge balloon figures, enormous balloon figures dangling from the apse of a loaf of bread and a chalice of wine. And of course, I suppose whoever did that was convinced that no one had figured out the, sac uh, the sacramentum yet. <laughs> they just flew up to make it bigger and bigger. Uh, but as Catholics usually say, it's the body and blood of Christ, but what is the reality that's really finally affected by that is communion. It's communion with that. So all sacraments have this structure, semiotical structure for Augustine. And it's not just sacraments. It's actually every word of scripture, it's, uh, especially Jewish scripture. And where's like the, the mystery coming to? Is there, there's an element of mystery as well, right? How does that fit into this, as you said, like a sort of semiotic account of well, I would say we need a sacramental theologian here to discourse on that. But, I mean, the mystery is clearly not just the sacramental. The sacramental, just like when Augustine's doing the interrogation there. Uh, uh, the mystery is not the thing. Birds, water, or even a man and a woman. The mystery is the relation to what they're signifying. That's what we're inquiring into. Okay, that, that, I guess that's sort of my question. I mean, maybe it's for the quadruple, but it seems to me that there's a presence of God within the sacrament. And there is this structure by which we understand that, mm -hmm. but the presence has some level of mystery. Sure. Right, yeah, I'm sure. So does all of creation, by the way, as well. On this one, I'm pretty sure that I, I don't think I could do it in 20 minutes very well, but I certainly couldn't do it in five minutes. Okay. Yes, Father Lee. I was just going to say, we can take this up as a quadruple. Yeah. It might be nice. Uh, I yeah. mean, I have several times taught our course on the Eucharist, and so uh, yes. we have, there's a lot to be said about it, but you are the, I made three. Yes, and when you address that question at the uh, living room, ask him. I just, want to, <laughs> I just want to point out one more passage, and I'm not going to read it. I just want you to mark it, because I think it's his best inquiry, uh, because book 13 is on the multiplicity of signs in sacred scripture, having literal, allegorical, moral, and eschatological meaning. And in book 13, chapter 24, he's simply trying to do an exegesis of, uh, trying to do it in, in exegesis of, uh, be fruitful and multiply. And he says, look, whales are fruitful and multiply. So are human beings fruitful and multiply. And what does that mean? Beyond the literal meaning, the literal meaning is actually multiply. 
Okay. Reproducing. Causing more good, actually, in others. But what are the other meanings of it? And it's, it's pretty interesting, all the other meanings he finds, which I think he's taking even as spiritually the chief, the chief meanings. Every time that deacon in Carthage, I think, preaches, he is fulfilling the uh, spiritual and moral meaning of being fruitful and multiplying. And, but you have to follow his, his, his allegorical exegesis here. 13 is all about putting all of these different signs together for an interrogation or reading or an exegesis of sacred scripture, and he's going to find them all in Genesis 1, even the New Testament ones. He does three more commentaries on Genesis 1. And the reason he can't get out of Genesis 1 on this particular problem is because of his Manichaean background. Because it's precisely Genesis 1 that is uh, negated by Manichaean cosmology and so forth. Okay, it's over. Thank you. Just real quick, what was the rest of the of marriage? Was it also communion? Yeah. Okay. And then, so, just dramatically, is sacramental is that the sacrament of? Is that gender Was that? No, alone. Yeah, by itself. Okay, alone. You briefly alluded to this earlier, but could you please apply this paradigm to the interpretation of Scripture? But we have to go back. We really do have to go into Confessions 13 for this. Because he does it right in front of your eyes. Oh, I just meant how it works. What exactly is the sacrament of Thompson? When we say, what is the race that we add to that? But see, sacraments instituted by Christ is only one example of what he's talking about here, which is there is, by divine inspiration, built into Scripture, literal, well, they have to be literal ones, but allegorical, moral, and eschatological. So even the meaning of be fruitful and multiply, or what fruitfulness is, or multiplication, is already being interpreted in this Scripture, I mean, in, in this structure for Augustine. Now, Augustine believed that Genesis 1 was written down by Moses, which I think our guys in the School of Theology would not. But it's, uh, for Augustine, it's power-packed in terms of the semiotical. And that he was convinced of the importance of it. He he almost never mentions Genesis 2. But he mentions Genesis 1 because of that Manichaean background and how much depends upon getting creation correct. Like, did creation really happen over multiple days? Or is the multiplicity of days another kind of sign? You see? He wants to get Genesis 1 nailed down. 
but but of course, uh, of course, you can have a field day when you go to Pentateuch because of all of the different aspects of the law. There are commandments, but there are all kinds of other injunctions having to do thing having to do with why two birds of a certain color are to be sacrificed on a certain day, and that all requires uh, literal, allegorical, and so forth meanings. But I think on this question, the best way to tackle it is to read someone doing it. Really, it, it, not my theory about it, but just to read someone who does it. Augustine's really good. I mean, he's, he's a good model, but I mean, Jerome, I mean, this is patristical exegesis, so there's, there's many different examples. I think you have to work through with them how they're going through sentence by sentence, so forth. When you say that Augustine says that truth is not less than being shared with the intro mm -hmm. of David Turner, is that because truth is immaterial? Yeah, because it pertains to reason. And uh, the reason can proliferate or multiply things in a way bodies can't, okay? Because in reason, the one who multiplies the possession of the truth is not itself being changed. In fact, Augustine in Book 13, Chapter 24, is really interested in arguing that the most important meaning of be fruitful and multiply is not just procreation. Okay. Right. Because God makes all things fruitful and multiplies them. And, uh, yeah, he's not having sex. He's not procreating. So, uh, so you want to get to all of the meanings because these things are not just teaching us about ourselves, but about who God is. Yeah. This is I sorry, yeah. this is just related to the sort of ethics of philosophy we were talking about last night, I guess, right? So the truth itself can be shared without being diminished. But me being the smartest person can't be. If I share my knowledge, then I'm not the smartest person anymore. Right? Or like if you're like like if you're winning like only one person can win an argument, but two people can come to agreement. So, so a lot of, um, and so this is sort of connected, that is connected to this libido mm -hmm. like, like Only one person is going to die. But if you give that up, then you can share it. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds right. It does, I think so. Right. Um, yes. Um, when Augustine talks about the mouth and the heart, and mm -hmm. all of his different food references, Confessions. Yeah. Do you think there's any Eucharistic undertones there, or is he more? They're all over the place, actually. And you know, in uh, Rex Warner is different than Pussy, is different than Chadwick. Uh, in in our translations, typically they will italicize things that are absolutely making it clear what scripture he is talking about. And in a way that would immediately trigger the mind to think about Eucharist, 
on something else. But none of them do it consistently. As I said before, it would, it would screw up the printing of these books if they did. So, um, yeah, he's doing it all the time. Yeah. Yeah, what it means to be fed on the bread of Israel. I mean, he's, he's making Eucharistic references constantly. Sort of as a follow-up, if I can. Um, do you have any idea why he would... He's making all these references, and also to like Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. who he very rarely talks about explicitly. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any idea why so many of these like basic Christian um, ideas or doctrines he more has an implicit undercurrent rather than talking about right. them directly? He 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 often refers to Christ as mediator, and. Uh, uh, or he's talking about Christ through what Christ says in Scripture, the prodigal son story. And he has so many of the scriptural par- parables at work here. Um, he has not yet written a, well, you know where you really want to go for the allegorical and moral and eschatological references to Christ. You want to go to the stuff on the Psalms. Because in, in the Psalms, he actually takes the words of the Psalms and imagines they're being spoken by Jesus on the cross to the church. It's very, very Christological. So. All right, let's thank our speaker. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.tomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.